Well, good morning. Is that too loud or is that good? You're good? The kids are not right. allowed to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's really exciting to be here this morning with you, being able to uh, bring God's Word together. And I want to say just a special uh, shout out and praise to our single moms. It's tough being a single mom. You know, and I've had the joy with my wife of working with many single moms. And if you're a single mom today, or if you've had uh, just a tough experience with a mom, you know, I want you to know we've been praying for you this morning. Um, It is not easy being a mom today. You know what I mean? And um, if you're struggling, just know that the Lord is your husband. The Lord is there as a protector to you, and he loves you. So... We're going to talk about something that's a, it's an interesting topic on this kind of morning because it's the tests that challenge self-deceit. And you think, well, that is a strange topic on a Mother's Day, but I want, you to, I want you to bear with me. When you think about doing exams, when you think about doing tests, and it doesn't matter whether you're a college student or you're a, um, a university student or you're just in a, in a, a profession, every pro- profession has tests that need to be fulfilled. I know even if you're a welder, every year there has to be a certain test that is done for a welder just to make sure they understand the different types of steel and metal and density, etc. So what do tests do? Tests expose, don't they? How many of you liked tests? Like you were strange and you liked tests. I, I apparently did like tests because a test exposes where we need to grow. But this is tough because we live in a day and age that we don't like to be tested. We don't like to be exposed. And yet, we often think, well, tests are because if we pass, that means we've done well. Well, not always. Sometimes because we pass a test simply means we know how to regurgitate information. And if we fail, that thing's, oh, that's that's the end of it. Well, that's not true either. Tests expose. And I'm about to talk to you today about how that is so positive Because tests expose. Actually, in the Bible, in the book of James, chapter 1, 2, and 4, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it as an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete needing nothing. Isn't that amazing? So tests are not necessarily bad, but in our culture where we give ninth place participation badges, <laughs> that's a whole nother sermon. <laughs> we, we, we don't understand tests. And interesting, one of the most significant tests is actually the test of self-deceit. So when I work with clients And this is true when I was a pastor. This is true when I do counseling and coaching. I often want the test of the greatest test is the self-defense mechanism of self-deceit, of deceit. Believe it or not, we are deceivers. So when I held my little baby girl, uh, Ellie, uh, who we adopted, I held her. And now I didn't do this in front of a mother. I did this inside of my my head because uh, Renee would not have been happy. But I held her and I said, oh who's a beautiful baby full of self-deceit. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that young, young husbands to do that, but one of the things you learn as you have kids, because I got kids in their late 20s and then little Ellie who's five, wow, 
Tell me it's not true that kids can be deceitful. Ellie? Did you just go into the fridge? No. Well, the fridge was open. Okay. Did you go take that little egg that I told you not to? No. So what's in your pull-up? An egg? <laughs> we, isn't it true? You don't have to teach a child to do wrong. You've got to teach a child to do right because self-deceit is there. But there's a huge problem because self-deceit and deceit is not just a new concept, is it? In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, listen to this passage. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. See, in this passage this morning, we find Adam and Eve, the father and the mother of our humanity, being deceived. And it's, it's so critical that, that, that deception and the tests of deception are exposed. Pastor R. Kent Hughes said this, Adam and Eve, as our parents, were genetically, historically, and theologically every man and woman. They are paradigmatic of all of us, not only in their original sin, but listen to this, but because the way they attempted to deal with their sin is the pattern as we, as which we attempt to deal with it today. This is not new. So you might be unsaved this morning and say, well, I'm not into the Bible. But here's what's important. Listen to what's being said in Genesis chapter 3. So turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2.25, and we'll read from verse 2.25 to Genesis 3.13. Now this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, uh, the woman you gave to me, uh, she, she, uh, she gave me some of the fruit of the trees and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, 
what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we find a test, and there we find failure. And the question we want to ask this, this morning is, how does the test of deceit play out with our first parents? Well, we find the test of deceit. There are five interrelated tests that make up the test of self-deceit. And if you and I could know these five interrelated tests that make up the test of self-deceit, we literally could work on self-deceit. How many of you would like to work on your own deceit? Anybody? We all should be saying yes, because it's there. So what's the very first interrelated test there? What's, the, what's a critical test? Well, the first is the spiritual warfare test. And, it, and each test has a question. The spiritual warfare test. Here's the first question. Do you recognize the enemy? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. See, the Bible does not say that the, Satan is a myth. The Bible sees Satan as a reality. And do you recognize that, that uh, enemy? Well, it's interesting. John recognized the enemy. In Revelation 12, verse 10, he says, Now the great dragon was thrown down. Listen to what he says. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. Jesus recognized who the enemy was. And he actually says in John 8, 44, he says, He was a murderer from the beginning. And he says to the, the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand by the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, his own native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So John recognizes who he was. Jesus recognizes who Satan was. And it's interesting, we should recognize it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'll just read the last part here in verse 8, be watchful, be mindful, be sober, be alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, does what? He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I'm from Africa, and one of the things I love doing is going up to Kruger National Park, and this is a fact, a lion never roars until he's got his prey. That's just a fact. He'll sneak up on and then grab and that's what our adversary, the devil, does. Now, you might, but if you're not a Christian here today, you still need to recognize something. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, this is what it says. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, so they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is in the exact likeness of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Satan actually blinds people from accepting the truth. And then we find, number five, we should recognize that he daily, hourly pursues us, so we should daily and hourly put on what? The whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand. Notice, not run after Satan, but stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you are able to withstand the evil day. And having done all this, stand firm. So what's, what is the, what's the armor? 
First of all, verse 14 of uh, Ephesians 6, put on the belt of truth instead of deceit and lies. Put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts and our emotions. Put on the shoes of, uh, of the feet fitted with a readiness of, to share the gospel of peace, both positional gospel irre, irre, uh, irrespective of circumstances. In all your circumstances, take up the what? The shield of the faith. Take on the helmet of salvation. Why? Because it protects our mind from distorted thinking and deceitful thinking. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, Satan knows. Satan knows how to attack. And he has demons that do that. We need to be aware of our enemy. We should also recognize that Satan is on a time clock. Do you realize that Satan knows he's defeated? He actually knows that. In the Matthew 8, 29, when this man was filled with demons, Jesus steps forward and the demon shouted out, Son of God, what are you doing here? Have you come to torment us before our appointed time? Think of that. Satan, the demons know. In fact, James 2.19 actually says the demons believe, Satan believes in God and Jesus and trembles. He knows his time is up. And in Revelation 20, listen to what it says in verse uh, 2. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of sulfur and the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophets were, and they were tempt, uh, tormented day and night forever and ever. In 1 John 3, 8, the reason Jesus came and why he appeared was to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. Thanks be to God. And Romans actually tells us this. The end of Romans, how Romans ends, the book of Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. He is a defeated enemy. But you need to recognize him. I need to recognize him because he is a master of deceit. And all it takes is a little word in there. When you're upset with somebody, yeah, they are an idiot. I thought so. Huh. Or look who's coming. You okay, Craig? I'm fine. You look like you don't like me. I like you. That's the inside voice, by the way. <laughs> right? We are deceived naturally. And so we need to recognize our enemy, the spiritual warfare test. Here's the second one. The spiritual leadership test. Do we fail to take our calling seriously? The spiritual leadership test. Where do I get that? Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts in the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Well, how's that the spiritual leadership test? Adam left his wife open to be deceived. Adam was actually designed by God. In Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed the man. In Genesis 2-8, the Lord God planted the man and appointed him and put the man into the garden he had formed. Genesis 2-15, the Lord God took the man and put him in charge of the garden of Eden to work it, to worship and serve God, to keep it, to protect and to preserve. The man was placed to protect the word of God. How do we know that? Chapter 2, verse 16 and 7. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you will eat of it, you will surely die. Who did God form? The man. Who did God appoint? The man. Who did God give the word of God to? The man. And what did we find? The man kept his mouth shut when he should have said something. And gentlemen, young men, we have been struggling with that ever since. He kept his mouth shut. God has designed husbands to physically, financially, ultimately, spiritually protect and to preserve their wives. In Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. You say, bye-bye to mama. (laughs) It is just not wow when a man cannot leave his home and protect his wife in these ways, a woman knows, needs to know she's protected emotionally, that he is a secure base that she can return to. A woman needs to know that she, he is a safe haven who will work through the challenges. A woman needs to know that he will emotionally attune and understand where she's coming from. That is critical. A man needs to preserve and persevere and speak the truth to his wife in love. That's protection. A man needs to be in the word of God on his knees seeking God, talking and initiating, and not just initiating sex when he wants it, but initiating lovemaking. And what is lovemaking? Just what I just described. Isn't that true, ladies? If you know you're protected, if you know that the man in your life will take care of you, and this is why young men, by the way, touching your fiance or a girlfriend before you're married is just not on because you've already told us something. We, I, I, I will actually touch a woman I'm not married to. And ladies, if you let that happen, you're saying to the guy, it's okay. You can touch any girl you want. There's several books out right now on premarital sex and, and living together. It doesn't work because particularly a woman feels afraid. A woman needs to know she's safe. And I don't care what the world teaches you. For 37 years, I've worked with couples in private. And every single time, women want to know they're safe. I went on a menopause conference by mistake. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually supposed to be a communication conference. I went to the wrong hotel. (laughs) Woo! Was that ever warm? So I was sitting in the front row, and I turned around, and there's like 300 women in this conference room. This lady stood up, and she's about to say hello. She said, sir, are you in the wrong room? No. <laughs> First self-deceit. I said, yes, actually, I'm in the wrong hotel, I think. But can I stay? It was awesome, because I, I was able to ask any question they want. They never asked me to come back, but it was amazing. <laughs> I stood up and I said to the women, I said, ladies, just be honest right now. How many of you know your husbands are afraid of you? Put up your hands. It's interesting. And I said, if you're, if you're 45 and uh, younger, don't put up your hand. Every woman put up their hand, 45 and older. I said, how many of you women know you can dominate? A little more sheepishly. I said, oh, no one's looking around. So we all read, everybody's eyes closed. Yeah, most of the older ladies put up the, uh, the hand, those who are mature ladies. Because we know that men... Don't step to the plate. Yeah, and just because you can hunt a moose doesn't mean you can handle a wife. <laughs> They're not the same. That's probably why we have so many hunt camps. 
So how important was it? How important was it to God that men did this? Look at the text in, in, in the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5.31. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul exhorts his, the husbands in, Matthew, uh, in Ephesians 5, 20, 5 and 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And that he might sanctify her, cleansing her. How? Listen to what it says. By washing of water with the word. Gentlemen, we've got to read the text to our wives. Yeah, but she doesn't want to listen to it. That doesn't matter. That's what your calling is. When I stand before the Lord, I will not give an account to how Renee responded. I'll give an account to what my calling was, true or false. God will say to me, Craig, what did you do with my word? How did you let Renee or speak with Renee about the truth? And I tell you, it is tough at times being a wife, and it's tough being a husband. It is. So ladies, at times you need to cut us a little slack. But it's still important. Now, what happened? you say, but Craig, is there a scripture that talks about the delicacy and the importance of a man knowing a woman in, in terms of protecting her? Yes, in 1 Peter 3, 7. In 1 Peter 3, 7, that is a passage written to how a group of people who are suffering. So how do we live for Christ even though we're suffering? That's, and so listen to the text, 1, 1 Peter 3, 7. Live in an understanding way, live in a way whereby the husband seeks to understand his wife that gains a fuller knowledge of who she is because she is more the delicate, precious vessel as a co-heir of Jesus Christ. So nothing, husbands, will hinder your prayers. That's a paraphrase of that verse. Our wives are more precious and delicate. Yeah, you should see when she's upset. Yeah, but show me a nagging wife and I'll show you a woman whose needs are not being met. There's something very important of a backbone in secret where a man stands up to his wife in a way that is gentle but firm and a way that shows her that she's safe with him. Amen? And that's key. So we have the spiritual war test. Do we recognize our enemy? We have the spiritual leadership test. Do we know our calling? The third one, the biblical theology test or the biblical authority test. Do we trust our God? In Genesis 3.1, it says, did God actually say? You have to realize all deception, all deception begins with doubting God's word, true or false. And you see, and here's the problem with listening to the new atheists on the, on the YouTube. And that's fine. Everybody has a perspective. But it's important that you and I, as men and women, study, not read, study God's word. What does the Bible actually teach? Don't just take somebody else's uh, view on it. What does it teach? Now, remember, I am not saying it is wrong to question God's word. That's, that's not the problem. Because actually, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, and when they read the book of the law, Ezra did, all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. The Levites helped the people understand the law. They read from the book, from the book of the law, clearly giving sense to it so the people could understand the reading. In fact, in uh, Acts 17.11, it says, Now the Bereans were of more noble a character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, but went home and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was so. That's fantastic. Study it. Examine it. But what we find here, in some ways, Eve drinks the Kool-Aid, because Eve distrusts, number one, God's word by listening to Satan doubt God's word. He immediately casts 
doubt on God's word. Did God really say? But it's interesting. Do you realize in just the Old Testament, 2,500 times it says, thus says the Lord, or the Lord God has said. 2,500 times. So let's see what the text says, right? In Deuteronomy 8, 18, I have put the words in your mouth. In, on, on his deathbed, this is what David said, the spirit of the Lord has spoken through me. His words were always on my tongue. Isaiah says, my words that I have put in your mouth. God says, I put these words in your mouth. That's key because God gives his word. And so she distrusts, she doubts God's word. Second, what does she do? She's distracted. She's distracted from God's word. Why? Because she focuses on the restriction, not on the provision. She's distracted. See, he says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. That's what, is that what God said though? No, he said, you are free to eat of every tree in the garden, but of this one tree, you shall not eat of it. Isn't it interesting how we get distracted by what we can't do instead of what we've been given? Isn't that true? We're, we're like that all the time. Yeah, but we don't have this. But we can't have this. And thirdly, we see that Eve distrusts God's word by denying the consequences of disobeying God's word. God said, you will surely die. What does Satan say? You will, sh- you will not surely die. Well, just how true is that? We die. And that is, that is so sad. But here's the good news. We actually don't die. This dies. This dies, but our soul does not die, thanks be to God. We are forever in the presence of the Lord if you've come to know Christ as your Savior. But here's a fact. It's sad. We die. I hate death, that part, to know that I'm going to lose the people I love. And we've lost a few people that way. When my father-in-law passed away in November and just sitting there wiping his face in those last few moments before he passed away, I hate death, but I whispered in his ear and I said, Dad, you can go home because you're not actually going to die. And to know that he was with the Lord, that is just so beautiful, right? So we don't die. But how often do you think we as Canadians think about death? My wife and I have a saying every day, is it a good day to die? Therefore, it needs to be a great day to live. I believe in death every single day. I don't walk around with a, you know, with a cloak on and a, as a grim reaper. No, no, no. I'm excited about that day when I had my little heart attack thing uh, uh, two years ago, um, and I'm lying on the, on the floor there at the steward's house. It was a, it was a wake-up call. Michelle hit me, actually. No, no, she didn't. <laughs> I'm joking. But, she, but she's like, what are you doing? And in fact, one of the guys, a close friend of mine I worked out with, he goes, what? What are you doing here? I'm going back to him. I couldn't even speak, but it's like, but as I'm lying there, what was amazing, I said two things to God. I know I'm in trouble because it's me, but I know that I'm going to be with you. I had absolutely zero fear. When I go to South Africa, people say, oh, what happens if you're shot? Well, then I die <laughs> or I get wounded. But it's like, oh, what happened? We all, we're all going to die. The problem is nobody lives, and that's the great deceit. That's the great deceit, because we distrust God's word, don't we? And so what's so important about knowing God's word? Look at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. Paul said this, evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse. Listen to what they'll do. Deceiving and being deceived. 
But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise to salvation for faith in Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's what he's saying. God's Word is right. It's profitable. It teaches us what is right. It rebukes us and exposes us when we're wrong. It corrects us to get right, and it trains us to stay right. So you may be equipped for every good work. Thanks be to God. There's going to come a day, by the way, where the government quite easily could shut down charitable giving. They could shut down churches. That's what happened in South Africa for a while. And that's why it's important you know the word of God. Because if you think, oh, the pastor's not here, then I don't know what the Bible teaches. What? You've got the Bible. Start studying it. Start reading it because it is true. Don't be distracted. Don't doubt. Don't deny. And when you do, go back to God and say, I don't understand something that you've written here. Wrestle with him. But don't just sit back. Don't just sit back. And so there's the spiritual warfare test, the spiritual leadership test. We have the Bible authority test, and here's the big one. We have the eyesight test. The eyesight test. Do we lose sight of whose we are and what we demand? That's a little bit different in your notes, I know. The eyesight test. Do we lose sight of whose we are and then what we end up by demanding? See, one of the greatest tests, really, to self-deceit is actually thinking you see and you don't. In John 9, interesting, 40, the Pharisees did not like what Jesus was saying, and they said to him, what, are you telling us we're blind too? And Jesus says, if only you admitted you were blind, you would, I would have helped you to see, but your guilt remains. It's so important if you think you see, and you, well, I'm, I'm good, I don't, I, don't, I don't need this, I'm good. Be careful of that. Because guess what? I don't care who you are, and this is including me. There are things when I read in the Bible, I go, oh, my word. That's so true. I failed that. I'm failing in that area. And I actually believed I was doing right, but I'm actually doing wrong. That's key. Now, look at what the passage says. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when your eyes are open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Then in verse, that's in verse 5, verse 6. When the woman saw the, the tree was good for food. And in verse 7, their eyes of both of them were opened. Can you see how the idea of what's about to happen is between those two lines? Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Here's the challenge. Their eyes were not opened. So what does it mean their eyes were opened? Well, uh, Kenneth Matthew says this. Your eyes will be opened as a metaphor for knowledge, suggesting a newfound awareness not previously possessed. So in the Old Testament, this awareness sometimes is said to be obtained through divine assistance. And finally, they will gain, Adam and Eve will gain what they belong to God, knowing good and evil. That was the lie. Essentially, Satan is contending that God is holding back. So we lose sight in two ways. The first way we lose sight is we lose sight in believing that God is holding back. Listen to what he was saying. He said something like this. Think about it, Eve. You don't need God. He's not enough anyway. Or God does not want you to know him. God uh, is actually, uh, because God knows everything, he's keeping back. Or number three here, he says, 
God must be keeping something back from you or God cannot be trusted with that which matters most. Here's a good one. God is not good. He restricts your identity and meaning. You must create your own identity and meaning. You decide and create your own version and definition of good and evil. You don't need God to interpret life for you. How about this one? You can be right in your own eyes. You are an individualistic being who needs no one or nothing. Those sounds familiar today. I don't need God. I don't need anything that God gives. I can be my own person. Now, if you're a Christian, you can slap a Christian bumper sticker on that and go, well, that's, you know, it's just me kind of actualizing myself. Well, that could be a deceit. Is what we're doing actually true? Is what we're doing a, a reflection of reality? So we lose sight that way. Here's a second we lose sight. By evaluating through an, a shallow evaluation. It says, the woman saw. That word saw is found 10 times, sorry, six times in Genesis 1. It means God evaluates. God determines. And you've got to realize, it says, as it says in Scripture, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. So being right in our own eyes is simply this. How do you spell sin? S-I-N. So sin is to substitute, so to pull away from what God has said, to individualistically make life about myself, and then to navigate my world negatively my way, therefore miss the blessing of what God has said. That's what sin is. We substitute what God has said. We individualistically make it about ourselves and our plan, and then we navigate our world our way, missing the blessing of what God has for our life. So let's have a look really quickly in verse 6 of Eve's shallow deception, a shallow evaluation that leads to deception. Number one, she convinced herself that God is not good, right? God is not good. She believed a lie that God is not good. Next, number two, she craved with her eyes to design her own good. She saw that the tree was good for food. It was a what? Delight to the eyes. That word delight in the Hebrew means an insatiable yearning, a longing that becomes a demand. So she craved. Number three, this is a big one. She covets. She covets by comparing. And she saw that the tree was to be desired for making one wise. The word covet has the idea of gaining value or worth of something. But it also has the idea that I compare what someone else has. In Ecclesiastes 4.4, the song of, in the, in, uh, Solomon said, Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. In Mark chapter 4, listen to what it says. The, th- there's four soils, and one of the soils is the weedy soil. Is someone who hears the word of God, but the cares of this world, listen to what it says, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for, for other things enter in and choke that person and make them un- 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 unfruitful. That would, and you know, you think of it, keeping up with the Joneses in this culture is massive. Often people are deceived, and we are very individualistic. As long as I have my own house, and I know I have my own wealth, and I have my own comfort, that's a huge coveting. And, and so we, we compare, we compare what we have. And meanwhile, people aren't hearing the gospel. Meanwhile, we believe that our number one goal is to protect ourselves because we covet, don't we? We covet, we compare. 
Somebody wins the lotto. You can hear people, oh, I could just get my break. Or somebody gets something, oh, I wish I had that. And that coveting is real. She craves, so God is not good. She's convinced God is not good. She craves, she covets. And then what does she do? She exercises choice and takes charge. She took some. She took some. And that taking is massive. You know, there's an advert, uh, I don't know if it's called HomeSense or whatever. This woman goes in and she's, she's buying something and she's supposed to, she, she came for one thing and she goes out with five different other things. You know, that's the idea of taking, taking, but you're just never satisfied. It's taking, it's taking. Throughout the Bible, you'll see take, 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 take. Do you realize that we are more takers than givers? True or false? We're takers. That's a deceit. You owe me. Entitlement is based on taking. Do you know that? You owe me. Unfortunately, I was at Timmy's the other day, and that's not unfortunate. I was glad I was at Timmy's. What was unfortunate is somebody comes in, I ordered a double-double. I'm like, whoa. I said, she didn't get it right? What? No. I ordered a, well, you know, just, yeah, just, just, just say to her, may I please have it? Who are you? No one in particular. <laughs> but, you know, chill, man. But that entitlement, you owe me. That big in your life, big in my life, listen to the arguments we have. Every argument often is based upon that taking, 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 you owe me. Here's another one, number five, she consumed. Interesting, we have a consumer index in Wall Street. We're a consumption Based. We take and we consume. For who? For me, right? We're hoarders. We gather, we have to. Well, you never know. You, you, you just can't have too many. Oh, please. We don't challenge that. That's a self-deceit. So we take, we take. And I'd like to suggest this about COVID. I already have enough enemies, so I might as well say this. Here's the reality of COVID in this country. We were kicked out of our comfort. We were kicked out of our predictability. I'm going to Africa, Malawi, Zimbabwe, interesting in China. You look where the suffering, there is no complaints whatsoever. Do you know that? Because they expect to die. They expect things to go wrong. But in a culture where we expect comfort, as you land in Toronto Pearson, what should be displayed right there, live life comfortably. That's what we are. That's what, it was two years Try 10 years of suffering. Try, try 10 years of being persecuted. Try 20. Try 15. Let's be honest, people. We were kicked out of our comfort. We don't like to be hassled. Yet God goes, guess what? This is my place. This is my, I have the right to take your life or not take your life. See, I come from that culture. So I live that every day of my life. And, and when you see this passage, you know what's so scary? I see me here. Don't you see you here? If you say no, wow. You don't see you here at all. We're here. Both of us are here. All of us are here. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not with him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. The world will pass away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Listen to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it was easy. It was not easy. 
I'm not saying that suffering was not real. It was very real. I'm not saying people did not die. They did die. And it's heartbreaking. But in a culture that does not want or expect that, that's the problem. When you wake up in the morning and you don't expect that this could be your last day, that's a problem. And that's why we've got to go back to the text because we are deceived. And here's the final test in closing, the exposure test. The exposure test. Do we openly and honestly deal with our deceit and our sins? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, he, she gave me, the fruit to eat, uh, gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What do you see in common there? Does anyone take responsibility? Does anyone take responsibility? No. We've done it ever since this. No one. How easy are we to escape goat or blame? Are you a whiner? I can be a bit of a whiner. Have you ever blamed? Your spouse comes to you or a friend comes to you. Yeah, but if you hadn't have done. Or you make me. Feel like it. No, you make me. You make me do this, or you make me do that, or you've made me do this. Have you ever done that? You ever blamed somebody? Well, that's exactly what the text is saying. Adam and Eve failed the test, and so do we. And why do they fail the test? Because no one takes responsibility. Look at Jeremiah 17 9. The heart is what? Say that again. The heart is above. And who can understand it? That's our plight. We're all deceitful. We all orbit our world around ourselves. And you know what I love about our church here at Cornerstone and Redeemer across the road? We're all a pain. We're all a mess. And if we could just admit to one another that we fail, how cool would it be someone getting up saying, I am really struggling with pornography? Or I'm really struggling with taking deals under the table. I'm really struggling with it. And we just say, that is not good, but thank you for sharing that. Let's now work on how to get that right. How good was that? What, you realize the relief people would have? Here's a fact. Most people, fact, you can tell me I'm wrong if you want. Fact, most people will not just stand up and say, here's where I'm struggling. Would you pray for me? Without feeling someone goes, Look at him. I thought they were maturer than that. How true is that? Church can be the loneliest place on the planet for people to stand up and say, I am really struggling. I want to have an affair, and I know it's not right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating. I'm lying. I can't stand my husband. He's a pain. And other women say amen, but that's not good. But then you go, yeah, but why is he a pain? And how about this? Other women standing up, what are you doing? To do that, are you doing something to emasculate him? And we could all stand up and have a discussion without simply blaming the other, but we could all face our sin together. How many of you here are sinners? Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so why do you act like you're not? 
When someone says to you, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. <laughs> no, you're not. I was, when I, you know, it was 22 years ago, I was preparing to go to uh, Bethel. Uh, the, it's now Emmanuel. And I remember going in and they were asking me, uh, how's things this morning? Renee and I had a huge fight. And I go, oh, I can't preach, I can't preach. And she goes, you've got to preach. Preach, and then we'll deal with this when we get back. Okay, so I go there, and I'm feeling bad, and I walk in, and some of the elders were there. They said, Brother Craig, how are you this morning? I said, terrible. I, I feel like absolute, oh, my word. I can't preach. What are we going to do? Not one of them said, hey, let's pray. Let's pray for you. Nobody just grabbed me. You've got to preach, but we'll deal with this afterwards. So I got up, and I said, I just, I can't preach this morning. I'm a wreck. I had a huge fight with my wife. You know, I, I, I'm terrible as a husband. I can control and dominate at times. She can get passive-aggressive on me. And we get all these arguments, and sure, Sunday morning. I said, how many of you had a fight this morning? Just put up your hands. I couldn't believe over half the congregation put up their hands. <laughs> I went, isn't that nice that we can be honest with one another, open with one another? Let's look at what the text says in 1 John 1, 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, what does it say? What does it say? We deceive ourselves and one another, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice he's not saying, it doesn't mean there's not consequence. Because for certain sins, of course, they're forgiven, but don't they have consequence? Sure they do. They go on, you know, if you've had an affair, that will have a consequence for a good number of years. If you've stolen on your, or you've Pay, you, you owe back taxes, that may take you a number of years. But it doesn't mean you're not forgiven. And imagine people coming around you saying, how's it going today, brother? How are you doing? Our single moms, how's it going? Well, I've met, I've met Gary. Well, is that a good idea that you've got Gary? Because, you know, yeah, but he needs me. Oh, no, he don't. Let's pray with you. Yeah, but, you know, he said he's going to supply some needs. What do you need? What do you need? I have a client right now, her husband took everything off her and the four kids, left her with nothing. I said, give me a list of what you need. And we're going to send her clothing and stuff that she needs, food and groceries. Imagine a congregation like that. Now, thanks be to God, because of our wonderful pastor, we are a congregation like that. Amen? Amen. But imagine if you could just go to somebody next to you and say, I am really struggling. Would you pray for me? And you don't look down on that person. You say, sure, I will. How about this? I'm losing it with my husband. I want to strangle him. And you can go to him, go to her. You know what? I understand that. Yeah, but you don't know what he's like. That was really tough. Let's pray that through. Let's talk about what that's like. Let's get some help together. And then meet with the husband. Meet with the family. You don't need me. You meet with them and pray and get it right. That's why I'm always concerned about the Facebook pictures. Because it acts like everything's okay when it's not. Now, That doesn't mean you can't have some pictures if you have some good friends and stuff. My point is, don't let that be image management. Don't let that be impression management. Be real. Amen? So this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Everybody close your eyes and put your heads down, please. This is the light. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that what has been done plainly has been done in the sight of God and by God. So today, 
Jesus passed the test for us. Jesus took his place on the cross for you and me so that we could pass the test. If you're here today and you're done with deceit, if you're here today and you want some, you're going to go reach somebody and accept them in their sin and you're, and you're not going to be afraid, I want you to put up your hand and say, I'm done with deceit. I'm done with deceit. Thank you. That should be all of us. I'm done with deceit. And that you're going to make a vow to God, and I'm going to keep quiet. I'm going to go on my knees here, and you're going to seek the Lord, and you're going to ask him to soften your heart to deceit, and you're going to ask him to work in your life so that you could reach others who, who you know perhaps are sinning, and you're going to love them so there's no more deceit. So just pray to the Lord, and then I'll close in prayer. Father, we are done with deceit, and you know that we are not, but we are. Our hearts are desperately wicked, or they're deceitful above all things, but you, in verse 10, you search the heart and examine the mind, and you will restore us, Lord. And so this morning, we ask that we'll be exposed, we'll be real before you and one another. May this be a church where we can confess our sins one to another, and that, Lord, we'll accept the other's faults, and together we'll press forward. How we are so thankful for a pastor, Lord, who loves you and, and speaks the word of God. And this is a safe place to share our sin. None of us have arrived, Father. We want to realize our enemy. We want to be spiritual leaders in our home, Father. We want to take your word seriously. And we want our eyes open to the truth of your word. And now, Lord, we want to be exposed by you. So thank you that we serve a Savior who died on the cross and shed his blood, was buried and rose again, and covered over all of our deceit. So may we now live as people who are open and exposed, and we are clothed by you, by Christ, and by one another. Lord, may you be exalted. And all God's people said, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.